Ask a Pathologist podcast. Welcome to the Ask a Pathologist podcast. My name is Bianca Collings. I am the Vice President of Marketing for Lumea, and I also sit on the Executive Board for the Digital Diagnostic Summit. And today we have a really amazing episode for you. It's a hot topic. And uh, speaking from the summit, the, the Diagnostic Summit, uh, we created that event to give the industry a hands-on, step-by-step, uh, really white glove experience on how to get started in digital pathology or how to break it down. It's not just this, this academic high level. We really give our attendees the tools that they need so they can walk away and implement. And so that's why I'm so excited to have our guests on um, this episode today. We have Stacy Carney, who is the founder and president of Elevation Strategic Development. And she's going to tell you a little bit more about that in just a second. And we have her colleague, Ciara Martin, who specializes in the development, validation, and implementation of digital pathology workflows. Uh, And today we are gonna just dive deep into uh, the nuts and bolts of implementing digital pathology workflows. But before we do that, I would love Stacy first for you to give us a little bit of background and how you got to where you were and then CR the same. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Bianca. Really appreciate the opportunity to speak to your audience today. Um, this is a topic both CR and I are very passionate about. Um, we are committed to this field and this industry. And so enjoy getting to share our knowledge and experience um, with those who are interested in either entering into or expanding um, their experience in digital pathology. Um, I actually, my background um, is that uh, I got my PhD in immunology as my start. Um, And when I was going through graduate school, um, really the the emergence of biomarkers was happening. We had a few examples in the HER2 and EGFR space, but PDL1 was starting to become um, very much talked about. And I was um, focused on the utilization of the immune system and the pathways that could be used um, to combat cancer um, and for oncology treatments. And so um, I knew that um, I wanted to be a part of the storytelling and bringing life-saving treatments um, into patient care. And to me, um, I was looking for opportunities in grad school to go beyond the bench and understand how I could participate in the industry and took um, a course on regulatory affairs and wound up working towards a certificate and figured out that that was my sweet spot. That's what I was passionate about. This was the gate way to getting into the clinic where regulatory authorities and helping brilliant innovators tell their story, organize their data and and push that through the regulate regulatory process. So um, my first out of grad school, I went, went into regulatory intelligence and um, it was some of the first exposure I had to FDA starting to talk about biomarkers in a regulated fashion. And they were having some town halls things were starting to happen. And I realized I wanted to get involved in that scientific side of it. So um, one of my first um, movements was to begin uh, working more on assays and biomarker development. 
and landed at a company that did AI software development, or at the time we were just image analysis. Um, we weren't quite getting into AI yet. And um, we were using that in the CapClia setting and developing that through pharma and looking at CDX applications or patient selection um, and building out the ability to bring digital pathology into a regulated IVD space, whether that was in the US or Europe. And um, that's how this blossomed and realized then that this was growing. It was growing big and this industry needed um, some specialization in it to understand how do you, whether it's through the LDT space or as an IVD, getting these um, tools into the hands of our pathologists to enhance patient care. So um, realized there was a need for that across so many companies. So that was the birth of Elevation. We are a regulatory, <laughs> clinical, and quality services organization. And we have a very high specialization in digital pathology and the development of these products, again, both in the laboratory setting as well as for manufacturers. So it's been a journey of luck and fortune, I would say, uh, or fortunate circumstances that's brought me here. Um, and I've now been in the, the field coming close to 10 years, which is really hard wow. to say. <laughs> so um, it's been a great journey. Um, I think we want to push it further, though. We want to see it expand and, and more adoption um, in the industry. And so that's that's what we do every day. Well, absolutely. I love that it's it was almost a perfect storm for you and you were the perfect captain to get this ship through the storm and it is expanding. Uh, and you are not in this alone. You have quite a, a, a fine group uh, of, of individuals that uh, work by your side. And Sierra, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and how you uh, landed to where you are. Sure, yeah, thank you. So, um my background is in toxicology. I got my PhD in molecular toxicology from UCLA. And I've approached, I kind of steered my career into this field um, as a technophile. I just love new technology and exploring it. And so that's kind of how I ended up here. And that's kind of the arc of the story of my career. So in graduate school, I was doing live imaging um, at the uh, synapse and using genetically encoded reagents. And then I ended up um, kind of taking that experience and working um, with Stacy uh, at the image analysis uh, vendor. And I was uh, very fortunate and excited to lead an effort there to have a CLIA LDT validated and then implemented in a clinical trial with image analysis and IHC for patient selection. So um, that was a wild ride. It was great. And um, I've kind of been hooked ever since. I've been focused on um, IVD and CDX development. I've really been in the commercial space and in particular with spatial biology. So that requires the implementation of staining, you know, at benchtop or automated, and then um, acquisition, which can be quite complicated, <laughs> complex. <laughs> and then, um, and then once you have that image, how do you uh, extract the data from that in a meaningful way and consistent across um, sites and studies and so forth? So that's kind of where I, where I've been and and how I got here. 
Oh, I love it. I resonate with the tech junkie part. That's my background, but not the toxicology. So no, this is, I appreciate the, the expertise that both of you uh, obviously have. And as we dive into this, the nuts and bolts of implementing digital pathology workflows, uh, hoping that you'll share each with us and we can rotate your top three. I'm sure there it's, there's a lot more than three X six actually. So I'd love to hit on the, the, the top three and Stacy, we'll start with you. Yeah, uh, that'd be great. So I think one of the places when or, or areas where we get for those coming into the field who are thinking and COVID really did expand the interest or the curiosity about the ability to implement a digital workflow in a laboratory out of necessity, quite frankly, to keep our pathologists safe, healthy, and, and doing their job for their patients. Right. Um, and so then the question is, what is this? Where, how is this regulated? What do I need to do? Like, where do, where do I start from a regulatory perspective, meaning, or a, you know, a compliance perspective? And, you know, the, the, the regulations for a laboratory to implement a digital workflow are still the CAPCLIA, um, is the CAPCLIA environment here in the U.S. And so whether you're CAP accredited or um, you're CLIA certified or both, um, this is these. This is what you're operating under. This is what you need your build your quality system under in order to support a digital workflow. So the challenge of that, and the reason why we get the question, is because if you look at the CLIA regulations, you're not going to find very much about implementing a scanner or um, validating a monitor. In fact, you won't see anything. These these regulations were written in 1988. They have not been updated since. So not a lot you're going to learn there. Um, CAP has done some work. They have released some guidelines um, on this front, um, whether it's um, validating um, a digital um, system for, for primary diagnosis. Um, they have some um, information they've provided on AI software. You can, you can find it on their website. Um, but I think a lot of the work has actually happened by our pathologists in the field actually. And that the studies that are be put, being put out are and published in peer reviewed journals are by pathologists implementing this in their laboratories, whether it is perhaps validation during COVID for a um, uh, remote review, which under the CMS memorandum um, and enforcement policy, that is a possibility right now um, with four pathologists, it's an option. Um, as long as you are tied to your institutional CLIA lab, um, or whether they're validating AI software tools um, in their laboratory they're going to use for clinical use. Um, a lot of KOLs in this field are publishing sound, important studies on that front. So the work is actually being done by the industry itself in a lot of ways and staying ahead of the regulations. Um, and we do have the opportunity. I think the digital pathology field right now lives and breathes in the LDT space. Meaning, um, if you look at the number of FDA cleared or approved uh, products we have, it's somewhat limited based on what we actually see being used in the field. And that's because um, pathologists and uh, clinical laboratories are validating um, these, the use of these tools in their own laboratories. Mm -hmm. And the innovation is definitely happening there. Um, I think for manufacturers, 
they're working on it. Um, they mm-hmm. want more tools as well. But yeah, so that's actually where the information is coming from and the resources are really coming from at the moment. But really at your baseline, um, you're being regulated under CLIA. So Okay, that's fascinating. So it's coming from within. It's yeah. being regulated from CLIA. Before we move over to Sierra, I want to ask one question because you said it right at the beginning. When a pathologist considers going digital, is mm-hmm. the first thought compliance and regulatory affairs? Is that the first, is that top of mind? Or is it, what do they shop solutions first and then come here? I, I'm just, I'm curious the, the order here. Yeah. And I'd love to hear Ciara's opinion on this because she's the technophile. So okay. I probably... Probably um, they look for the platform first. Then, and Ciara, I know, can talk more in depth about this. Then it's about which components do you need and how are you going to tie them together? Then we start talking about what does it mean to have compliance with those? Sure. Okay. All right. Well, let's heal from Ciara because I might have a follow up to that. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, I would completely agree. Um, that's exactly what I was thinking. I, I think it's fairly rare, not just for pathologists, but any scientist in the translational space uh, to think first about compliance and regulatory, um, and le- unless you came out of the regulatory space or have been burned before, maybe. But um, typically, individuals um, who have this deep technical expertise, they're going to be thinking about how they're the scientific question and how do I answer the scientific question and the tools that enable you to do that. And if they're a technophile, then maybe they're thinking about how can I use this cool new tool I heard about, right, to answer and and maybe I can find a question (laughs) for that. So I do I do think that um, individuals pathologists in particular, yeah, you do tend to start with um, the tools. And that was that was kind of leading to one of the questions. Yours. Okay, we'll go we'll go there. Yes, leading. (laughs) Yeah. So what the the kind of typical question that we get, which is, what is the pathologist's role in digital in the digital pathology workflow? And in particular for AI applications. And so to just step back, if we think about the arc of digital pathology and everything that it encompasses as a workflow, you're starting with a slide and you're going to stay in that slide. And then the digital part really begins. It's the image acquisition, where instead of sitting in front of a microscope, you're going to have a scanner that would be uh, scanning the slide or a... um, Yes, typically it would be a, like a flatbed scanner, but you could also have like an upright microscope sometimes. There's a lot There's a lot of different solutions. And then that slide's gonna be digitized. So then you're gonna have a digital image and that needs to be stored. And then you'll be able to need to recall that image. So um, there, there's lots of software solutions for doing that, uh, you know, on the, on the computer itself or in the cloud sure. and then sharing across sites 
and being able to view those simultaneously with multiple individuals and assign tasks and things like that. And then um, even beyond that, besides just viewing the images, then it becomes how do I annotate them so that I can remove regions that, you know, maybe there was a fold in the tissue or there's some necrosis or something um, happened um, that I don't, I don't want, I just kind of want to ignore, especially if I'm going to be bringing in AI algorithms to um, decipher where is the tumor in the sample and where are the cells, how many cells, how many cells are positive. These are the things that um, the pathologist is always there and guiding the entire process. So as particularly when it comes to annotations, uh, in QC of slide quality, as well as QC of staining, and then um, really for developing the algorithms, that has to be done hand in hand with the Absolutely. expert who understands what is appropriate and what's not appropriate, and, and then can um, determine you know the the settings that that are ideal given that um, particular study. So it's really there's multiple steps to the workflow. The pathologist sure. is, or, or histologist, they're always there through the whole process. And you'll see, you'll see different individuals come in and out, right? So when you're at the beginning, you're going to have a histologist. And then um, maybe when you're more in the data, data phase, you may have a computational scientist, a data scientist, or translational scientist who um, would be working hand-in-hand with a pathologist to interpret the data. Oh, it's perfect. I love that you brought that up, that the pathologist, what, you know, what role exactly, right? What questions do they have and how they, uh, how do they fit in the decision, especially the decision-making? And I, I found that, you know, you get the pathologist, you get them on board, you get them thinking and working through these things, then you can, it's a lot easier to get upstream then it is to from the top to go downstream to the pathologist and get them kicking and screaming. So, um, and Bianca, I just yes. I, I thought I might just add because I, I think it's such an important point for for pathologists who are thinking about coming going digital, if you will. Um, you know, these workflows are really meant to enhance um, what the pathologist already does um, in their job, not to replace. And I think. Because um, they are a critical component as a human in the loop, as we like to say in AI, yeah. um, that the, the the quality of the outputs are driven by the pathologist reviewing this um, and determining that the um, the device is functioning or the product is functioning properly. So um, it truly is an enhancement um, yeah. of the the clinical workflow from the beginning. And so I think that's an important point. We try to stress to pathologists we're talking to about who might want to go into a digital workflow. Um, mm -hmm. There's very little replacement. It's usually just um, an enhancement. So. That's a good word, enhance. And actually said at the very beginning of this podcast, enhance versus replace. And uh, to know that we, back to your first point, the information we're getting, it's from within. We are de so dependent on these pathologists and using, you know, AI as an enhancement or a quality to check or quality control and not, not at all. And at least in our frame of mind to replace. So both of you are very, I love both the perspectives on um, 
the pathologist. Okay, give me an, another tip from uh, nuts and bolts of, of implementing digital pathology or a question that you are frequently asked. Stacey. <laughs> yeah, so I think, um, you know, we, we talk about that once you, um, once you bring a system into your, into your laboratory, now what? Um, and there are quite a few, you know, because once it's in your laboratory and the lab director is now responsible for the outputs of this tool um, in sign-off, as well as the pathologist, um, it does come under your quality system. And so I agree with Ciara. Um, everybody wants to think about the technology first. That's more fun. But then here we are. <laughs> that's that's to think about quality, that's what we do. So, um, and I think, I think the questions around, you know, each of those components that Ciara was talking about need to be validated in your system. So I think it's really important that you may have components from different manufacturers even, but they have to be validated together as a system. Um, so whether that's the interface with your limbs even, or it's your monitor, your scanner, your viewer, your application, um, depending on how you're going to use this in your reporting, those components need to be validated. And again, think about that if you're doing it within your laboratory um, on products that have not been FDA cleared or approved yet, then that then becomes falls under your standard analytical verification. You need to think about all of the components you would normally do for that. If you're now there are some FDA cleared systems and they have end-to-end -end versus different components. And again, if you're using it. Um, in an unmodified way, then that falls under a verification at your lab. So I think it's about also, you know, making sure that you understand that the full workflow is now incorporated sure. <laughs> into your system. Um, and that the quality system needs to support an electronic system. I also will say um, not to forget about your privacy and security. So when you're implementing a digital workflow, it's likely at your institution, you're going to be chatting with your IT folks now. Um, there are HIPAA concerns um, as speaking from one regulation, but also just privacy and security in general at your institution, um, that patient information needs to be protected um, and that confidential information. So I think it's those different pieces that in a digital space, particularly if data is moving, in and out of the institution, um, you know, thinking about a VPN, for, ex for example, your IT departments can usually help you with that piece, um, but your quality management system and your processes need to address those components. So with your group, do you consult on the type of security or that they would need, uh, or do you provide in-house, do you provide something like that for the companies that you consult with? Because that HIPAA and security piece is big because you are adding this digital component to what was prior, maybe just and mostly manual, except for your LIS, your limbs and your AHR. But um, is yeah, it's a great question. So we actually um, we do design quality systems to meet um, privacy and security regulations and standards. Okay. However, we are always very honest. We leave the IT expertise to those folks who specialize. Um, sure. we, um, we do have companies we know that can pressure test a system um, cybersecurity wise, um, but that's a highly technical Oh, expertise. absolutely. 
<laughs> as you know. And no, so right a, lot of, a lot of times with if you're at a large institution, you're you're you'll already have the support you need. But if you're yeah. at a smaller one, um, or you're you know more individualized in how you're in, implementing this. Um, there are companies that can help with those types of examinations. And elevation, you'll point them in the right direction as part That's of exactly that consulting. Right. Okay. Exactly All right. right. So Sierra, next next tip or question or most frequently asked question you get in nuts and bolts of implementing digital pathology. Um, yeah, I think one thing that we get a lot of is where do I start? <laughs> Right? Um, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I, theoretically, it's all wonderful. We wanted, of course, okay, we know I mean, yeah. yeah, where do we start? <laughs> where do we start? So um, I, it, it is different for different individuals, right? If you're, um, the way that you approach it, if you're a technophile, you're like, I'm going to get all the instruments, I'm going to bring them in. <laughs> but um uh, and then maybe others, um, it's that we have others in our organization that we work at, with who are exposing us to these technologies and starting to introduce them. And then we're adapting them as part of our everyday workflow. So that is you know, how you, you get there is a little bit different. But if it's something that you are exploring, then the typical um, you know, things that I would advise would be going to summits, like I know you're going to, to speak to, um, <laughs> speaking to peers and individuals who specialize in this, right? Who have experience with the softwares that you're thinking about bringing in-house and the instruments you're thinking about bringing in-house and um, really you know, leveraging your network to make sure that um, the, the tools are appropriate and then reaching out to those companies and speaking to the application scientists and the experts and getting demos. So definitely that hands-on time is extremely valuable. And then um, I would also add that it's um, important to think about who's going to be using this and in what setting, both in the near immediate use case, but then thinking, you know, over the lifespan of the technology, how long you think it will be um, leveraged, then what is appropriate there? So do you need a RUO or a DX version of the software is often offered, right? And um, one has more, you know, DX has more compliance, but will limit your flexibility right and that's sure. true for stainers as well it's across the whole workflow right mm -hmm. and um so thinking what a pathologist may need may be different than what somebody who is in the discovery group needs and are you going to be sharing the same instrumentation or not and so those are the types of things having those discussions before the technology and systems are brought in-house will save um a lot of headache down the road so that that would be what i typically tell yes. those individuals okay so if this is one of the first questions you are asked and you hear do you give recommendations uh tools software uh or is it um guiding them to what you said that it's more peer peer review peer guidance do you have a set? If they if they, well, if they say, okay, here I am. This is yeah. my persona. This is what I want. You know who we are. Uh, 
do you, I, I'm just curious if it's part of I've done of both. what you do. I've done okay. both. So um, in my role now, it's different. I've worked for commercial organizations that sell particular solutions. And of sure. course, okay. you're going to They're advocate <laughs> those solutions. But you never want to sell anybody a doorstop either, right? Because no. that doesn't that doesn't help anybody. So um, I think I've always been very transparent about um, when it's an appropriate fit and when it's not. And then, sure. um, you know, in the role now, I can, um, I would always, I'm always going to tell somebody to reach out to colleagues who have ex- firsthand experience. And then if I have firsthand experience, I'm happy to lend that to the individuals. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, we have time for one more question, but I'm going to, I'm going to ask this one. Um, and Sarah, I'm going to start with you. Uh, and unless Stacy, of course, you feel like this is more appropriate. Uh, being a de- product developer, I am not a product developer, but having worked with them and, and trying to get a product uh, out into the digital pathology market, we're often criticized for taking a long time uh, and, Maybe you could pull back the curtain and tell us why. Why? Why do these things? And the other thing you mentioned earlier is there are a lot of tools out there. Not all of them are FDA approved. In fact, that process, it's so long. So you're getting validation within. And even if um, I would say end-to-end FDA clearance on a, a certain piece of software, it seems like it's more segmented, that that's an outlier to have an entire system. Um, so I curious your your take on why why does this take so long to get things uh, out to the go to market i've definitely worked behind the curtain a lot with um research and development and marketing teams to push these solutions out the door and it is a harrowing effort <laughs> a lot of the time you're trying to balance the customer needs and the voice of the customer against the timeline, right? So I don't necessarily think these are unique challenges to the field. I think it is um, that, but perhaps why this comes up is that there are so many steps to this, you know, there are multiple steps to this workflow and each has its own, unique complexity, right? Tissue is complex. Science is complex. Staining with antibodies is very complex. And then we um, love to ask these really compelling questions that they are driving the science forward and they are changing our therapies. But, um, you know, how are T cells interacting in the tumor versus in the stroma when I do XYZ versus... One, two, three, you know, it does get um, uh, very exciting, but very um, deep and expansive. So sure, sure. I guess that answers it at a high level. Well, and I would say it does. And I appreciate you. Can't forget this. Yes, this is a technical, technical world, digital, going to digital pathology. It's it's moving towards that whole, you know, tech side of um, business and and other tech roles that I have had, if a customer base or the market is demanding changes in your product or something new, it's ac- it, the time to market isn't, the runway isn't long. 
uh, coming here, it's so much longer because again, it's the, the science complexities and the intricacies and the very almost sacred nature of what we're handling and what we're dealing with. So um, we have to remember that, right? When we're not getting all the tech uh, that we want at our fingertips. Exactly. And there's often not just one voice of customer as well. So there are many customers who use these applications, like user personas is what you would say, right? So we've got the histologist, the pathologist, the translational scientist, you've got the computational biologist, then you've got the executive, right? Like, and so, and it goes on and on and on, right? So right, right. Um, when you're trying to please everybody or, or get features in that are relevant to those different users, that also will extend your time to market unless your um, your minimally viable product is only for one user persona. Yeah, which is rare, right? And, and with, with, with these complex yeah, exactly. workflows. Okay, so last question for Stacey. Future thinking, forward thinking, you have a lot of insight on what's going on in Europe and how that might affect uh, the United States and digital pathology. Hold the curtain a little bit and talk, talk, tell us that, tease it out, because I know that we have um, Stacey and the Elevate group, they're coming to the Digital Diagnostics Summit and they will be a, a, a feature speaker. And um, this is probably going to be one of the hot topics. So, uh-oh. I, I think so, Bianca, because I think it also gets to um, the question uh, that Ciara that was addressing about time to market and, and why does it take us so long? And I 100% agree with Ciara about the, um, the you've got to figure out the science first, and that is complicated. Then if you look at the complexity of the system itself and the way that regulators look at that system, <laughs> not just how... The, the manufacturer looks at the system, there's a lot of controls and a lot of regulation and a lot of requirements for a quality system to manufacture one of these devices in a regulated space. You have the benefit um, here in the US under the LDT concept to hold all of that control within your laboratory and do it under the CLIA regulations. Manufacturers who distribute their products are dealing with much larger, much larger regulations that they're that they're uh, addressing. And that brings me to Europe from the perspective of the IBDR, which is the in vitro diagnostic regulation in Europe, um, was implemented this past in May of 2022. So we're coming up on a year. And what it did in actuality was limit almost entirely the scope of a laboratory developed test in Europe to be almost non-existent. And so I think from that perspective, it, um, you now have a situation where you have to go through a regulated manufacturing process in order to do this and meet um, certain requirements um, that are larger. So even in an LDT space, you have to meet what's called Annex 1 of the IVDR. This is a long list of requirements that are much longer than the five to seven you have to meet under the CLIA regulations. And not to say that CLIA and CAP do not provide um, sound quality management systems for clinical laboratories and the environment you operate in. But this is more speaking to manufacturing of these, of these products that goes well beyond an analytical validation um, and kind of reagent QC. So I think 
if we look at that and think about that environment and what's happening in Europe and manufacturers now trying to work toward um, getting products on the market in a much with many more requirements, it's going to go slower. In addition to that, um, it's in draft form in Europe, but it's called the Artificial Intelligence Act. I think if you fall under the IBDR and you manufacture in the, under the IBDR, you're going to meet the requirements of the AI Act or the AIA, as they're calling it for short. Um, but if you are a user and you modify the product in any way and it has artificial intelligence software in it, you now become the requirements of a manufacturer. So not entirely, but I'm just to paraphrase what we are seeing and how we're interpreting it in the beginning. So should this proposal get pushed out there, um, users in Europe could, could um, inadvertently sometimes fall under this act. What I think is interesting about the space in general is, as I said in the beginning, digital pathology in the US right now lives and breathes in the LDT space. However, FDA has not been shy about noting they don't like the LDT concept and they are trying to undergo regulation. Um, they put forward a bill called the Valid Act. Um, it was near passing this past fall, um, but under the Medufa renegotiation, it did fail. And so now with sort of the chaos in Congress, it's going to be tough to get it passed. However, I think us in the industry who follow um, the regulatory landscape um, and intelligence, We'll tell um, companies and laboratories, it's likely not an if, but a when that yeah. is occurring in Europe is likely to occur in the U.S. at some point. Um, we will have a transition period like Europe, but if we're watching what's happening in Europe, the implementation has been a challenge. Um, mm -hmm. And that's just the reality, no matter how much you prepare. So while it's down the road, as Ciara was noting, when you're really thinking about the technologies you want to bring into your laboratory, think about this in the back of your head as mm -hmm. to when it could come. Now, I think we're years out, but um, these investments are important. They so, are. And I say go in with eyes wide open and think about yeah. the, the long-term gain of this versus something now, something short, and really good for manufacturers to be on top of this. And so I am really grateful, I especially just have an organization like yours that you are uh, on the four, just front lines of all of it with the education and and can help all of us in this industry uh, because you're right. If it's it's going on in Europe, it's, a, it's not if, but when. And we want to be prepared. So I appreciate both of you coming on today. I cannot wait to uh, get more <laughs> later on this year. I promise you this is going to probably be one of the hottest um, sessions that we have. And I imagine you're going to be flooded with all sorts of questions and who knows what between now and then, what, what new information will come to light that you can share with us because we are moving very fast, <laughs> ever, ever evolving. So again, yes, thank you both, Ciara, Stacy, uh, at, uh, from Ella, Elevation Strategic Development. I got it all. <laughs> and uh, just a little plug, uh, Digital Diagnostic Summit. Uh, you can register at digitaldiagnosticsummit.com and that's held in Park City, Utah later on this year. And again, we will have these lovely uh, women with us. So thank you so much for coming today. Thank, thank you. Thank you, it was a pleasure. All right. Take care, thank you.
Tune in next month for our next podcast. Thank you to the sponsors of our program, Lumea and the Digital Diagnostic Summit, our listeners, and our guests for making this possible and for your support. 